Welcome to the Bunker Global, where we tell you what you need to know about news and politics from around the world. It's a sprawling and complex world out there, so every Friday we're here to make it feel a little easier to comprehend. On this edition, the world's on fire, China's watching you, and Maloney's grip of Italy is tightening. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and I'm joined by Laura Makin Isherwood, the former London Bureau Chief of Feature Story News, who has also worked as a correspondent for the British Forces Broadcasting Service. Thank you for joining me, Laura. You're so welcome. Our main story this week could only be one thing. The earth is quite literally, in many places, on fire. We've seen extreme heat across the Northern Hemisphere with temperatures nearing 47 degrees Celsius in Italy on Wednesday. Beijing also broke temperature records this week with 27 consecutive days above 35 degrees Celsius. And at the Persian Gulf airport in Iran, a feels-like temperature of 66 degrees Celsius was recorded. Laura, just how hard is that sort of heat for the human body to handle? I saw the Washington Post call it nearly at the limit for human survival. Yeah, it's really hard because obviously your body is under extreme stress in those kinds of temperatures. If you think about your internal thermostat, okay, it sits at around 37 degrees. That's the point at which you might take your temperature if you're ill or something. And if it's higher than that, then you start to worry because your body's having to work really hard to continue functioning properly to get rid of that illness. So if it's constantly at a temperature above that, there's no way of cooling it down because the air is warmer than that 37 degrees. There might be high humidity. So your normal mechanisms like sweating isn't allowing you to cool that body down either. Then you start to over heat. And that puts great pressure on things like the heart, as I said, your blood pressure, and also can actually impact the organs as well and essentially start to shut them down and potentially cause brain damage. So it's really quite serious. We've seen these sort of visceral images of how horrific this has been. But mentioning how bad it is for our health is a this so-called invisible heat wave that we maybe don't notice. So yeah, of much. course, because we're seeing all of these pictures, aren't we, of these huge wildfires in Greece. We've seen people being evacuated from Canary Islands to uh, get away from these blazes. But then there is this element of humans being impacted without those sort of natural disasters, if we want to class them as that, because yeah. of that heat element. People are having to try to find other ways to keep cool, putting their heads in water getting fans out, using air conditioning where they can. But of course, some nations have experienced power outages as well because of the pressure that this heat is placing on that infrastructure. And so people are just trying to find any way they can to try to keep cool. I find all of this just really overwhelming and I kind of can't place it into into context. I think that's that's a real issue when we look at these kind of stories because it's just oh no, it's happening again, is what it almost feels like. This particular heat wave, could you contextualise it for me a little bit, just how drastic it is? This year, it has been extreme. And there's this high pressure system, which is creating this heat that's sitting not just over Europe, but also there's another across the US, across Asia as well. This is widespread. There are 12,000 record high temperatures that have already been recorded in various parts of the United States at the moment. People are expecting that in Italy, the European record may be broken this week. Temperatures, as you said, are in the high 40s. And this has happened at such a pace that meteorologists, climate scientists are looking at it and thinking, are we going over the tipping point by where climate change can actually be 
prevented or slowed at all. We've heard for years, haven't we, about these targets trying to keep under a two degrees centigrade warming, lowering carbon emissions to try to make sure that that happens, reducing the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to try to make sure that the world can sit below that because beyond that two degrees, there could be catastrophic impacts. And we're already seeing these changing weather systems, flooding um, and the melting of the ice caps, raising or rising sea levels rather, that it's starting to become more and more drastic and people are wondering whether these feedback loops, this continual melting of the ice, will actually just tip over the point where there is no return anymore. Yeah, the idea of a record at the moment, it feels like it's becoming redundant because the records are actually just becoming the norm. It feels like they're almost no longer records. It's just the world we we live in. Yeah, people are just trying to think, well, how high can it go? Yeah. That's it. What's been happening in Europe? Greece, to me, appears to be one of the worst hit places. Yeah, I've been looking at pictures this morning coming out of Greece and there's widespread wildfires there. So huge forests that have just caught a light because everything is so dry. The heat then causing that wood, of course, to be particularly um, combustible. Yeah. And once one tree catches fire, then the whole forest can go ablaze. So there's planes that are dropping hold loads of water onto these forests, trying to prevent it spreading any further. We've also seen the Acropolis having to shut, one of those major tourist attractions there in that nation. Workers there deciding to go on strike effectively four hours a day now because they simply say that it's too hot for them to work there. So there's just this intensity and a lack of availability to try to cope with that in terms of day-to-day life. People are just yeah. having to shut down and stay indoors. And it rolls on to the human suffering of the, you know, specifically you are suffering there and then as it is happening. And then there will be this economic impact which will roll on beyond that and create just this horrible catch-22 of things feeling worse and worse. Uh, What are some other flashpoints around the world? Well, we've seen awful flooding in South Korea. Pictures coming out of that nation over the last week have been of these intense rainfalls and then, of course, the flooding of a tunnel that had cars inside it. Now, when those pictures were coming out of there, it was obvious that the water levels were so high, but people were desperately trying to see if there were any survivors inside. And there weren't. People were pulled out who had lost their lives. It's things like that that are really placing extra pressures. It's not just the heat. As I said, it's the the weather systems and this intensity of rainfall. We see flooding in India, Pakistan quite regularly now, various floodplains where actually a lot of uh, homes are built because they are fertile soils um, are now getting washed away pretty regularly because of these intense weather systems that are hitting various uh, countries. And we're seeing stronger and stronger hurricanes um, and tornadoes, those kinds of tropical storms hitting parts of the US and causing chaos there too. And with that extra heat will create even more intensity in terms of those storms. So, you know, this knock-on impact and this feedback loop just seems to be getting worse and worse. And where we're seeing fire, of course, you then see smoke. How Mm. is that affecting people? Well, it's actually causing a lot of issue in cities where this heat is preventing uh, airflow and movement and reducing uh, or moving that smoke out of those areas. So we saw the Canadian wildfires a couple of weeks ago and then saw uh, New York struggling with smoke yeah. and smog there. People basically putting photographs online that were showing uh, the Statue of Liberty surrounded by this haze and they're walking around struggling to breathe. And it's just a really tricky 
thing to try to deal with. All people are going to have to try to do is find an area that has a slight breeze, possibly near some water to try to get that cool air and fresh air uh, Mm. onto them. But ultimately, humans have built cities that don't necessarily allow for that to happen. When it comes to cities as well, on a on a wider note, long term, there was a study into Chicago, wasn't there? Could you explain a little bit of that to me and what that means for, for cities we're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. So this is research that came from the Northwestern University in Illinois. And they're saying that Chicago is actually sinking. Now, obviously, we know that skyline, it's pretty high rise, a lot of built up areas. Why is it sinking? Because the heat is effectively changing the formation of the clay soils that sit beneath that city and causing the foundations that are built onto that clay to then move and crack. And so consequently, that pressure is pushing down on the clay, the buildings are starting to move and sink, researchers say, but it's not just going to be isolated to Chicago, it could be cities the world over there experiencing that as well. I suppose the fact that we just, we do not know, no. really, we, you know, we've seen this research into Chicago, but whether that may be happening right here to Canary Wharf, as we speak, is a, <laughs> well, yeah. uh, is a concern. Geologists are going to have to look at what the different formations, rock formations are under the ground and yeah. check out those different sediments, how they react to heat and also water flow as well. Yeah. We've seen sinkholes, haven't we, open up in various yeah. places around the world too as there's different shifting patterns of water flows beneath the, the subsoil. And yeah, there's a lot of mystery there. And particularly if you're looking at older buildings, because you know if you're building a house now, you've got to get building regs to come around, sign yeah. off how deep your foundations are, check out what the ground is beneath it. But for those older buildings that didn't have those checks and balances in developing nations where there aren't those kinds of checks and balances at all, there's all kinds of mysteries that might show up in the future. Or this has been uh, quite a lot of this has been quite bleak, let's say, to be to be blunt about it. But uh, you know, we clearly have a a very long way to go on combating this issue. This is very much the issue that all of us are most pressed by in the world, the world over. It would feel like to me. What innovations are happening in this fight against climate change? There is a lot of research going into renewable energies, trying to make sure that. Those industries that perhaps had high carbon emissions in the past are starting to reduce those. So the aviation industry, there's multiple engineering firms that are looking into ways to reduce carbon output for aeroplanes, for example. Um, Rolls-Royce, I think, are looking at some sort of um, hydrogen operated engine and then Zero Avias, which is an American firm, say that they're going to have a hydrogen powered aircraft that emits no CO2. Uh, ready commercially by 2025. Well, that's the hope anyway. Now, obviously, there will have to be a lot of testing around that, but that's quite positive. And then there's a lot of other scientists that have been working for decades on trying to work on carbon capture. So taking carbon out of the air, trying to grab that CO2 that is in the air and try to put it back into the ground. There's a lot of research in green technologies, that hydrogen as well, in terms of battery power um, and also fueling vehicles and lorries. Anglesey uh, on the northwest coast of Wales is looking at creating a sort of hydrogen hub there and focusing on renewables. But we have to be really obvious about this in terms of there may be the research, but there needs to be political will as well. And a lot of this research is perhaps costly. It takes time for big industries to want to shift, big companies to invest in it. But we know that the banking system is trying to invest quite heavily in uh, climate-focused tech companies and trying to persuade them to spend more on that innovation, but also for people who might look at stock markets to also uh, invest more in those companies too and make them more lucrative and more attractive. 
Yeah, cynically, it does feel to me like once this becomes financially viable and something which will be profitable, we will likely see much more movement in it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. It's all about the economy, ultimately. It's about political will. But the more that we see these kinds of pictures and the impacts that it's having on people, then the likelihood is that that political will will start to gather pace. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Next up on The Bunker Global, a parliamentary report has termed the UK's response to Chinese spying as completely inadequate. This begs the question, how big is the scale of China's spying operations and how could the UK step up its response to Chinese spying? I spoke with Kai Strittmatter, a former China correspondent for Süddeutsche Zeitung and of of We Have Been Harmonised, Life in China's Surveillance State, to find out. Kai, welcome to The Bunker. Good morning. Here in the UK, Chinese spying has come into focus with discussions around surveillance balloons and failed entrances to Parliament. Is the West getting better at spotting Chinese spying efforts, or is there just so much of it that it's inevitable we'll notice a few of them? I think, you know, there's actually the thing you call spying and the things that are mentioned in the parliamentary report that's even there's several things on several levels going on. There's the classical spying, the traditional spying going on with the balloon that was spotted above the U.S. territory and stuff. And I think the American government, they knew that these things had been going. This, this was not the first balloon. But then it was spotted and it ended up in the media and suddenly it escalated. So you have the classical spying and that's something, uh, you know, the intelligence agencies probably take care of. Then on another level, you have the Chinese going for our technological know-how. And that's not only through cyber hacking and stuff, but also sometimes with, you know, physical presence in our research laboratories and universities and stuff. And this is something we've been very late to realize that probably uh, we need a little bit more of uh, care there because really... We still do need exchange with China. We do need academic exchange and other sort of exchange. But China is no normal actor. You know, it's an increasingly totalitarian regime that submits really each and every part of its society and economy to political goals. So they do set up, you know, united front activities in our countries and they send people uh, to us who have uh, specific goals and we've been really slow in catching up there and especially with the united front activities you know the chinese going into our media our think tanks uh, universities and stuff so they might you know, sort of subvert certain uh, parts of our society um, without really being obvious uh, in the beginning. And at some point when they need it, then uh, they would actually activate uh, these forces. Kai, with that in mind, the sort of different types of 
influence and surveillance we we're seeing there. Is it possible to decipher what the main tactics China is using abroad? Or has that become such a sort of maelstrom of all sorts of different things that you can't really pick it apart? Yeah, um, actually, it's a full front effort on really all fronts. And this is something which we were really late to discover, you know. I still remember when I left China in the end of 2018, everybody was speaking about Russian influence operations, uh, which were really obvious back then uh, with the Brexit and uh, the Donald Trump elections. Um, But nobody was speaking about China, while at the same time, China was actually already uh, really uh, into those operations on a much larger scale, actually, <laughs> and much smarter at the same time, you know, and with much more resources because China is the economically uh, much more powerful and stronger country. You know, the Chinese economy is 10 times as big as the Russian ones by now, and people were not speaking about it. I mean, that has changed a little bit. But we still need to be much more careful there. Well, I wanted to ask you, what should the UK be doing here? But is the answer to that basically literally anything? Because it's doing nothing near like enough to monitor or detect this or to even begin combating it? Well, basically, you know, the first step is realizing what kind of a partner or country you're dealing with, what kind of a regime this is. And I think we've made progress on that front, but also there it has taken a long time because there were a lot of China fantasies still going uh, around, especially in the heads of, you know, business people and some politicians, because we, we used to do such good business with China, right? And we completely missed the developments there. So the first step there is really realizing in the past 10 years, this country has changed and it's a completely new political being. You know, it used to be something like, you know, if there is a thing like that, a sort of a normal dictatorship, which where the party actually before had ceded control uh, to the people, there were certain freedoms, there were economic freedoms, social freedoms. And we really liked that about China. It, we really, it made us curious about this country and it, it made it much more easy to defend our business practices with that. But many people completely missed that under Xi Jinping, this country has actually changed in ways which are really worrying. And by that, I mean, it's actually become a totalitarian state again. This is something on a completely different level. Repression inside the country. And that includes these high-tech surveillance techniques, you know, that no country on the planet had used before to that extent. You know, with artificial intelligence, big data systems and all this. This is one thing. Uh, So the repression, the increasing repression and the comeback of ideology inside China and on the other hand, it's um, increasingly assertive uh, role and aggressive tactics in the world. You know, it wants to reshape international institutions and uh, international world order. Is it because we don't get very much information from China that we have a sort of a static picture of it? Because of that totalitarianist regime there is we don't necessarily get a clear picture emerging from it. So our politicians just have a static view of it's the CCP and that's what it is. This would be a very benign interpretation. You know, there's not enough interpretation. Uh, This is why we're so blind and and so naive. And maybe, you know, in the first two, three years of Xi Jinping's rule, 
you could, I even could accept this explanation. But after that, really, I wonder whether it's been a more willful ignoring of this. And the whole discussion now, you know, in Germany is really interesting because what do we do, you know, after the Russian attack on Ukraine, suddenly we have this big political discussion. Wow, my God, suddenly we see what dictatorships are capable of, what totalitarian regimes are capable of. And you might have heard of the famous uh, uh, word that our chancellor uttered, the Zeitenwende, you know, a complete change of the times. This is a new time. We need to recalibrate all our foreign policies. And that goes for all European countries. And we have done that towards Russia. But the big question is, you know, if we have done it towards Russia, wouldn't it be even more pressing to do that kind of change towards China. And there's a big debate going on in, in, in Germany. We have taken some steps, but the biggest stumbling block for all this is economic interests, you know? In terms of within China at the moment, the, the spying on its own citizens, is that something that we just simply, we do not grasp the extent of? And could you explain just how intense is that? Because I think of things like facial recognition at, at crossroads and stuff like that. But that almost seems to be making it feel like a, a curiosity as opposed to just how intense it really is. Imagine Black Mirror, you know, the, <laughs> the British TV series and that already having become reality. And then you are in the dystopian China of today and facial recognition is part of it. And, you know, the People's Republic of China was always a surveillance state starting from 1949. So nothing new uh, uh, there. But these new technological instruments and means just have taken this to a whole new level. And there's no second state on the planet that has actually thrown all its resources uh, into, you know, artificial uh, intelligence, big data systems and like that. And of course, one reason for that is economic development. They want to be on the forefront of that because they don't want to miss the next industrial revolution like they missed the last one. Uh, so they want to be number one there economically. But the second pillar of the whole thing is the surveillance state. And they don't even hide that. They write that very openly in the papers when they write about artificial intelligence and stuff. And, you know, already in the year, just to give you one example, in the year 2018, uh, People's Daily came out on Twitter saying very proudly, already now our Skynet, the network of artificial intelligence-powered surveillance cameras, is capable of spotting and identifying each and every single one of our 1.4 billion citizens in the course of one second wherever they are yes i mean that's a, a genuinely a terrifying thought earlier this week it was reported that lesbian parents in italy are receiving letters informing them that they will be removed from birth certificates of their children this policy was part of georgia maloney's crackdown on lgbt families Maloney's ascent to power sparked concern across Europe. Now nine months into her term, what can we decipher from her actions? Laura, in regards to this family situation, what is Maloney doing here? And is it anything beyond what she told us she was going to do? Was this all unfortunately gross but inevitable? Yeah, what was on the cards, really? I mean, she had said that she wanted to enforce the kind of so-called traditional family views, that sort of nuclear uh, family a man and a woman, 
a mother and a father. And so this seems to be one of the first kind of obvious policies that's going to crack down on the LGBTQ plus communities. She's sending letters essentially to families that have uh, same-sex parents within it and notifying them that if they weren't the person that gave birth to them biologically, then they would be removed from that birth certificate, which just seems just awful emotionally for those people. Of course, a lot of people there are fighting it, trying to uh, push their their point that they are indeed a parent just because they're not biologically uh, linked. They are emotionally linked. They are caregivers and they are the parent. And so it doesn't seem like this is going to go uh, quietly. There will be a lot of protests about this. But, you know, she did and her party did, the Brothers of Italy Party, push forward this notion when they were going into the election that it was all about um, as I said, the nuclear family, that traditional view. But while Maloney likes to liken her party to the sort of conservatives here in the UK, it's definitely more right wing. And in a speech before that election, she said, yes to the natural family, no to the LGBT lobby, yes to sexual identity, no to gender ideology, no to Islamic violence, yes to secure borders, no to mass migration. So there's all this kind of listing of very definite views that she wanted to push forward. And it seems like this is starting to gain momentum now. And maybe people were warned about what they were going to get. So we're seeing how this is playing out in Italy. But beyond Italy's borders, how is Maloney interacting with neighbouring countries? Well, there's a lot of interaction with Spain, actually, the far right party there, Vox. And she's given speeches to uh, supporters of that party there, kind of trying to push uh, further links between the two nations and pushing rather than this far right ideal, saying that it's about patriotism and trying to encourage votes that way. And this appears to be a bit of a bid for power within Europe. So if she can push more countries to push towards the right, then that gathers momentum and perhaps she'll have more sway within the EU. Um, It's a bit of a departure from previous messages then, trying to bring together this EU power grouping, I suppose. It's always been fairly anti-EU in the past, but now it feels like Maloney is moving more towards Brussels, but it feels like she wants to change it a little. She's criticised it for being too democratic, too bureaucratic. And instead, she's talking about wanting to have more political assertion, essentially, more say and more sway. And gathering supporters from other nations might be the way that she feels she can do that in Brussels. Is it all somewhat about sort of semantics and framing here, though? Because what she's trying to do is just as visceral and horrible as I think everyone really predicted. But it seems that she's just kind of wanting to garner an image of respectability to me does that you know does that feel like the sense to you that this is all a part of trying to shift the way she wants but being able to frame it and go well no actually we're not entirely right wing as as you might like to characterize us yeah and it's so important in politics isn't it to use the right words the right messaging to try to get your points across to get what you want but also keep the majority of your population on side because you need their votes yeah. and so if they're seeing you know the sort of center center left pushing against her, she's going to have to try and find a way of navigating that to use the right language to keep people on side. But then also, if she can say, you know, Spain are moving more to the right, this is how the world wants to work, then is she going to try to win more votes that way? Come on, this is the right thing to do when actually it may or may not be. 
Is migration still her main focus? It's one of the big ones. She's sort of following, again, similar to Rishi Sunak about the whole stop the boats uh, idea. Because Italy is one of the sort of front lines in terms of people heading to Europe. It's one of the first ports of call. And they've had real issues with it. She wants to try to stop illegal migration. But there's also this bid for extra power in Europe, as I said a minute ago, trying to align herself more with Brussels and trying to bring Italy more into the fore to have a real economic sort of boom there and to make it more powerful within that bloc. Was she successful in doing that when she was at NATO in bolstering Italy's image? I mean, you mentioned Sunak there and she looked very friendly with Rishi Sunak whilst he was there. And I mean, how much to read into that? I don't know. These people are world leaders. They're not going to be horrible to one another. But then when it does seem that somewhat their policies are aligning, that that concerns me a little bit. So was that was that a success for Maloney? Well, yeah, we're seeing all these pictures coming out of NATO, weren't we, of her, as you said, being friendly with Rishi Sunak. She was also there front and centre with President Zelensky, with President Biden as well, and smiling, sort of holding hands, trying to be one of the team, yeah. it seems. Now, it's quite difficult to separate out sort of European politics uh, from, from NATO there because it's a different ideal, a different uh, mechanism for working together. It is ultimately about defence and that has to work globally. Did it work? We're going to have to wait and see, aren't we? Finally, I'm sure we can all relate to the feeling of sending an email to the wrong address or maybe doing a reply all to a private message. Well, how is this for an email faux pas? A typo has caused thousands of Pentagon documents to be leaked to one of Russia's allies. Laura, can you tell me a little more about this? Yeah, so this is all about domain names, right? So the US military uses .mil. But if you remove the I from that and just go for .ml, then you are hitting Mali. And that appears to have been (laughs) what has happened here. So people are sending emails, hoping that they're going to get to the US military, missing out that I, and they're actually sending it to Mali instead. So... As you said, 100,000 emails, it's thought, have come from the US military alone heading to Mali. They've been leaked in this way. And the only reason that this has been flagged to people is because a Dutch internet entrepreneur had actually been tasked with monitoring this for Mali, which seems a bit bizarre in itself. But hey, who are we? Now, this person has got a 10-year contract to to observe and to monitor everything. That is coming to an end. And so he's pushing the US government now, alerting them to what's happening and saying, you've got to sort this out, guys, because you're actually leaking information from the Pentagon. Now, none of it is classified, but it does include things like rotors for military personnel. They even leaked one email that looked at General James McConville. He's the army's chief of staff in the US that had details of where he was going on a visit. Now, that is potentially a big security risk for him. If that information were to fall into the wrong hands, then who knows what might happen? And Mali, of course, is in favour with Russia. And so with the current global situation at the moment, what is the US doing? Well, you know, you said that none of this was was classified and perhaps this may... Well, let's hope not be the most risky information that's been transferred. But if, if nothing else... It's not really just an embarrassing loss of face amid what is essentially feels like a kind of a new Cold War when it comes to the relationship between America and Russia. Well, if I was at the Pentagon, I'd be pretty embarrassed. I mean, there must have been some way that they could have tried to stop this happening or at least some sort of net to catch things before it goes out. But 
but clearly not. A Pentagon spokesperson said that they're aware of the issue and they're taking it seriously and they're giving more training to people. But it's not just the US that's done this. Actually, the Dutch and the Australian military have also made mistakes. They've been trying to send things to the United States, so that dot M-I-L, missing out the I and sending it to Mali instead. So... Maybe the US just need to think of a new domain name and put yeah. some better like security <laughs> procedures in place because this doesn't seem like it's going to go away, does it? Well, it's it certainly made me think that I probably will never be embarrassed about an email again. Oh, yeah, exactly. Whatever it might be. <laughs> you're not sending secrets to Marley, so you're all right. <laughs> and that is the end of this edition of The Bunker Global. Laura, thank you for joining me. More than welcome. Listeners, if you enjoyed the show, remember we'll be back next Friday for another edition. And of course, there's a new episode of The Bunker every day. Remember, to get them early, you can back us on Patreon. And for this week, if you enjoyed Kai's conversation with me, we'll have a full, unedited version of that up on Patreon for subscribers. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. The Bunker Global was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis and Laura makin the producer was Liam Tate, the production assistant was Adam Wright, and audio production was by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production.